Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Stewart Observatory. And we welcome those of you who are listening to us on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or the streaming link at www.as.arizona.edu. It's a beautiful night here in Tucson, Arizona, and our 21-inch Raymond E. White telescope is open. So at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, feel free, if, especially if, if you've never seen Jupiter with a large telescope, uh, it's the white building with the big white dome on top. Walk up two flights of stairs, and we have two very young and eager astronomy undergraduate majors ready to point the telescope to whatever you want to see, as long as it's up in the sky. I'd also like to remind you that if you are a student here for an assignment, I am the person who will stamp your assignment down at that table at the conclusion of the question and answer period. And finally, uh, I finally have now got the whole schedule together. So you may have seen I have flyers up on the back table that list the entire uh, schedule. In particular, I wanted to bring to your attention our next lecture two weeks from tonight on the 18th of February. In case you had no idea what the talk was about, it's called Computers and Thinking. Uh, professor Dave Arnett, who is a Regents Professor here at the University of Arizona, he received a very big honor this year from the American Astronomical Society. He was named the Henry Norris Russell Lecturer, and he gave that lecture a month ago in Long Beach, California at the AAS's winter meeting. That's a big honor. That's the highest honor that the American Astronomical Society gives to any astronomer. It's in recognition of a lifetime of achievement. And uh, Professor Arnett is only the second uh, uh, Stewart Observatory astronomer to have received that honor. The first was Professor Bart Bach, who was the fourth director of Stewart Observatory back in the late 60s. So Professor Arnett will be giving this talk about computers and thinking. He is a theorist who does a lot of modeling on computers of stars and supernova explosions. And it will be an exciting lecture, and we'll also have a reception to uh, celebrate his honor after the lecture two, week, uh, two weeks from tonight. But for now, we have a lecture tonight. Professor Richard Poss received his bachelor's degree from Knox College in Illinois. Thank you. I, I just had a, a blank. Knox College, he received his bachelor's degree uh, in history. And then he received his master's and his PhD from the University of Georgia in creative writing. Uh, yes. Professor Poss, so you're wondering why is he in the astronomy department? Well, I'll tell you. Um, for many years, he was the director of our humanities program here at the University of Arizona. And when they basically, the university decided to destroy the humanities program and break it into many pieces, all the tenured faculty had to find homes. And we snatched him up because one of Professor Poss's passions and expertise lies in how astronomy has been treated in art throughout history. So uh, he's a tenured faculty member on the astronomy department. He's our human humanities guy in the astronomy department. He teaches our classes on the history of astronomy and the philosophy of the scientific method. And he also teaches a course called Astronomy and the Arts within our department, as well as he still teaches classes in some of the humanities departments as well. So I now call upon Professor Poss to give a talk on plurality of worlds from Lucretius to the Kepler mission. Thank you very much. Um, can you hear me in the back? Okay. Yeah. Um, just in the interest of uh, accuracy, let me say that it wasn't creative writing but rather comparative literature. I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but uh, I actually uh, got a PhD in comparative literature and my original field had to do with uh, um, poetry and painting of the uh, European Renaissance, uh, which led me through various stages uh, to where we are now tonight. However, I want to talk about a, a venerable ancient theme, 
known as plurality of worlds. This is something that many of you will have experienced before. I will have occasion, therefore, to, um, to examine with you what we mean by world. Uh, plurality of worlds generally might be summarized as, uh, are there other worlds? Uh, do they have people? Do they have aliens? Do they have civilizations? Are there other worlds like the world that you and I inhabit right now? Now, one way of taking that question would be to say, well, uh, we come in various races. We have families. We have a mother and a father. We have governments. Uh, do these other worlds have all of those things? Is that what we mean by other worlds? One of the things I'll try to do tonight is make some distinctions uh, between what is a world and what is a universe and some of the many, many meanings that we get when we talk about other worlds. Uh, so I'd like to, I, I promised from Lucretius to the Kepler mission, I'd actually like to go back even earlier uh, than Lucretius. Uh, for the Babylonians, for the Mayans, and for many ancient civilizations, the universe and the world were the same thing. Uh, how many trees are there in the world? How many people are there in the world meant uh, a roughly disc-shaped area uh, which had strange and unknown boundaries, and then there were the phenomena of the sky. This is common to the Babylonians, the Mayans, uh, megalithic cultures uh, of Northern Europe, uh, the ancient Pueblo of America, uh, some of them very, very careful sun watchers, some of them very careful about um, observing and measuring the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the planets, and creating quite sophisticated calendars, but not much in the way of model making. Now, if you're one of these, if you live in a world like this, and you say, well, are there other worlds? What is it that you mean? Probably what you mean is not another disk floating over there or over there, but rather another whole system somewhere else either removed in physical distance or simply other than, without any express direction. Okay. Now, this is a lovely painting that I'm rather fond of. Uh, it's by a Russian painter, uh, Bronikov. Rather. It is a 19th century romantic painting of a group of Pythagoreans singing a hymn to the rising of the sun. Now, the reason this is very cool is that there are, there are several sources, but according to the one that, that I like the best, it's Pythagoras who around 550 BC first says the earth is a sphere. The earth is spherical. Now once the earth becomes spherical, it makes sense to say, well, are there other spherical earths that we might be able to talk about? I also like this painting. It's well executed, etc., but it shows both the rational and the irrational in ancient Greek culture. We associate Pythagoras with the Pythagorean theorem, with the correspondence between musical notations, musical intervals, and number. But most of all, we associate Pythagoras with a deep abiding faith that's almost a religious faith for him that at the very core of existence, at the very core of the principles that explain the way the universe works is number. And that goes from Pythagoras up to Plato, and it becomes a part of the Western tradition all the way up to Einstein and our own string theorists today. The idea that if you get really to the very, very heart of what makes the universe work the way it does, what you will have there is a formula. And the more simple, the more divine. Okay. Now, it's also true, however, that they're worshiping. Okay. In ancient Greece, we talk about the, the opposition between the rational and the irrational, and that we bring both of those up to a very high state of tension. We get caught up in the Greek theories. It's easy to forget things like the Eleusinian mysteries and the Dionysian cults and the wild orgies and the violence and the slavery and the warfare and all that. It's all part of the same package in ancient Greece. But for our purposes, I show this because from 550 on, it's now an 
Admittedly, with many of these things, other philosophers might get that idea, but it doesn't get written down, or it got written down, but it didn't survive, or it got written down and Aristotle didn't happen to remember it while he was lecturing, and so it doesn't appear in one of his books. But uh, from 550 on, the intellectuals, the philosophers of ancient Greece were familiar with and debated the notion that the shape of the world is a spherical earth and then whatever is out in space. We have atmosphere, clouds, sun, moon, and they may move however they move. Well, by the time we get to Aristotle, we find that he gives us arguments for the spherical earth, and they're good ones, but they're not original with him. He, by the time we get to Aristotle, it is accepted by all of the philosophers of ancient Greece that the earth is spherical. And what they're debating is, does it move, what's the size, and things of that sort. Well, with Aristotle, he adds an additional element to the traditional four. And he gives us a new physics. And I want to talk about that for just a second because it bears upon the question, are there other worlds? Well, for Aristotle, the Earth is spherical and made of four elements. Dirt, earth, metal, those things want to go to the center. And they pack themselves in towards the center. So when you drop a rock, it, it goes straight down. He would argue that if you walk over far enough and you get on the other side of the world and drop that rock, it goes straight up. That is towards the center of the earth. Water wants to get to the center, but not as avidly as stone. Air is ambivalent and fire, when you strike a match, that flame shoots away from the center of the earth because it wants to go out and join the heavens. These are desires on the part of, of things that exist in the world. But according to Aristotle, this is only true until we get to the sphere of the moon, the lunary sphere. And then he says things change categorically, qualitatively. They are, they're made of ether. And they behave differently. They move in perfect circles. They move in constant velocities. And you have the beginnings of a wedding with Aristotle between the mechanistic view of nature and an essentially spiritualized view of nature that we get from Plato. And that is that the stars are heavenly. We talk about the heavens. Does that have anything to do with heaven? Well, a theologian today would say no. It's got nothing at all to do with the heavens, with, with heaven. But for the ancients, it did. And that fed through Plato and the Neoplatonists into the development of Christianity. So for Aristotle from and, and this is a, a, a later diagram in a, in a beautifully illustrated book by Andreas Chelarius. Um, you have the sphere of the moon, then Venus, then the sun, then Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the sphere of the fixed stars. And in Aristotle, you have one more sphere after that, the prime mover, and that's basically a philosophical category. Now, what would it mean in this system to ask, are there other worlds? Are there other worlds? Because you're kind of tied down. The, the, Aristotle's philosophy had a really constricting effect on lots of conversations. Um, it can't be made of the stuff that things are made of down here. Aristotle wins out in the philosophical argument so that by the Hellenistic period, when Alexander conquers the Eastern Mediterranean and then Rome grows and subsumes that culture, Aristotle kind of wins out. But it's important to remember that there were other voices at the time uh, in ancient Greece. Uh, Anaxagoras, uh, best known for saying that uh, the stars are made of the same stuff that we have right down here. Now, if we'd taken that lead, uh, the history of astronomy and the history of physics would have been quite different. So, uh, in the uh, 3rd century BC, we have Epicurus. Epicurus is uh, the origin of what we call Epicureanism. He elucidated a philosophy that pleasure is the highest good, and it's, it's an, I don't mean to uh, uh, sell it short by summarizing it so crudely, it is a highly evolved philosophy. This is a quotation from Epicurus. There are infinite worlds, both like and unlike this world, for the atoms being infinite in number are born far out into space. For those atoms have not been used up either on one world or on a limited number of worlds. 
nor on all the worlds which are alike or on those which are different from these, so that, there are, so that there nowhere exists an obstacle to the infinite number of worlds. Pretty good. Now, the lineage goes back to Democritus, another pre-Socratic philosopher who evolves the theory of the atom, and we're all familiar with this, I think. The atoms are the basic constitution of matter, and everything is made of atoms, and if it's not made of atoms, it doesn't exist. And so there's a kind of materialist philosophical agenda that goes along with atomism from the very beginning. And it goes from Democritus to Epicurus to Lucretius. And so we get to Lucretius finally in the first century BC. And what, he is a poet. He writes a literary work in which he tries to promote the philosophy of Epicureanism and the theory of the atom. But I want to stress that this pluralism that is belief in the plurality of worlds, at this point is based on a metaphysical materialism. That is to say, there are no gods, rather there are only atoms, and those atoms are infinite. Now when we look at his reasoning for why atoms are infinite, it's not very tight reasoning. Uh, and also, Lucretius is not a scientist, and, and he's not really together on the sphericity of the earth and a lot of other things. But, there are passages in Lucretius that are sweeping in their grandeur and very panoramic and very inspiring in terms of investigating the physical principles of the universe. So this is the philosophy then that we have here. This is a diagram of Aristotle's universe that holds true uh, or holds dominance uh, all the way up into the Renaissance. Again, you have four elements. You have the sphere of the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the zodiacal constellations and the fixed stars, and the primum mobile or the prime mover. The Christians get a hold of it, influenced by Neoplatonism. They glom onto this and make it their own. The medieval Catholic Church nails itself to this and becomes committed. And in some ways this is bad, in other ways it's very good. The philosophy of Aristotle uh, and, and the theology of the New Testament and Old Testament come together in the, in the writings of people like uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and so on. And it's a great marriage for a while. Uh, and there are lots of diagrams that show that same picture of the universe that I could go through with you. But I just want to emphasize that at this point, uh, we're down here, and this stuff here is made of something else. And this is the limit to the universe out here. Um, and then when Christianity gets a hold of it, we have Aristotle's system, but it's subsumed beneath another paradigm, which is theocentric. It's all about salvation. Here we have uh, almost a stereotypical image of God the Father with uh, a crown and a long hair and a beard, and he's uh, on a throne, and he's surrounded by angels. And the physical universe of Aristotle is uh, ensconced within it. Even so, people still talk about the plurality of worlds. Um, Dante's not one of them. Let me mention that this is a, Dante, a diagram of Dante's poem. He has his vision around 1300. And again, uh, it's hard to talk about other worlds because the kind of matter that we have here is different from the kind of matter that we have out there. And even though Dante goes through hell and purgatory and up into heaven, his is a spiritual journey and a miraculous journey. He is not a spaceman. An angel comes to him, and he is given an extraordinary opportunity to see all this. It's a medieval dream vision uh, as opposed to space travel, and so that doesn't help us much either. But we do have figures like Nicholas of Cusa. Now, he is in what I would call the early Italian Renaissance, but he's mainly active in northern Europe, but in much of Europe it's still essentially medieval, and it is before, uh, a good ways before, the Copernican Revolution. Uh, Copernicus's book is published in 1543. So Nicholas of Cusa is, uh, studies the liberal arts, he studies canon law, and he becomes an expert at the, the bureaucratic innards of the church, as it were, and that's what he makes his career out of. Uh, he progresses, uh, he is well-connected and well-respected, uh, he's a canon law expert. He's an ambassador to Constantinople. He's made a cardinal in 1448. He is a Christian Neoplatonist philosopher. 
He also tries to reform church administration and fails at this. Among his writings is something called uh, the De Doctora Ignorantia from 1440. Here's some quotations from that. We know that he becomes interested in astronomy, that the earth might move around the sun, that the stars were other suns, that space was infinite, that the stars might have other worlds orbiting them, and that those worlds might be inhabited by creatures suitable to those worlds. Now, as a scholastic philosopher, in his mind, there's a big difference between what I can argue from first principles and conclude and demonstrate and things that just kind of might be. And so this is speculation. And we'll find that in most periods, plurality of worlds does not denote science. Rather, it denotes speculative talk by scientists after they've proven as much as they can prove. Nevertheless, all this is quite revolutionary. And notice, we go back, this comes out in 1440, and he is well known for this, and he still made a cardinal in 1448. And so this denotes that he is respectable and that his ideas or speculations have a certain respectability as well. Well, in 1543, it hits the fan with uh, a very quiet and modest work uh, by Copernicus, and within that, we have an alternate model for the solar system. The sun now might be at the center with Mercury, Venus, the Earth, with the moon going around it, then Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the sphere of fixed stars. Immobilis, it does not move. Well, that binds us down a little bit. But even then, even then, we have rearranged the structure of the solar system, and only after this point will you find in European literature uh, parodies that include A Voyage to the Moon, uh, such as you find by Cyrano de Bergerac in France in the 17th century. And so we look at this new model, and it, it must be said that Copernicus is mainly concerned with the orbits of the planets and with restoring uh, a simplicity to the solar system that it had under Aristotle. Uh, he's actually rebelling against the overly ornate and ungodly complicated system of Ptolemy with its equants and eccentrics and epicycles, and it was just a mess. He actually wants to get back to Aristotle, and he, he thinks we can do that if we just put the sun in the center and let the planetary orbits be perfect circles. doesn't work very well, but that's what he tries to do. You have variations at this time. Uh, one of the more famous is by Tycho, who keeps the Earth in the center and has the sun go around the Earth and take all of the planets with it. And so basically it's a Copernican system, but he doesn't want the Earth to move. In England, we have this book published by Thomas Diggs, or Diggies, in, in 1576. Now notice this is after Copernicus, but before 1609 when Galileo gets a hold of a telescope. Important to remember that everything before Galileo, a planet, by definition, is nothing but a point source. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn were simply stars that move in a different way from the other stars. They did not think of them as balls or places or anything like that. Not yet. What Diggies does is he, his father publishes an almanac, and he publishes a new edition and he rewrites a lot of it because Diggies is a Copernican. And so here at this early date of 1576, we find the Copernican system with the sun, Mercury, Venus, the Earth, and the moon, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. But now the sphere of fixed stars, it says, fixed infinitely up extendeth itself in attitude spherically, infinitely, meaning that these stars are stretched out in three dimensions, no longer on the shell of a sphere. And this raises lots of possibilities. Now you can write a crazy fantasy about going to one of those stars. And if our sun is a star, and this is really the, what you might call the radical statement of pluralism. That is, our sun is a star, it has planets, and one of the planets has us. All the other stars are suns. And they all have planets, and they all have civilizations like us, but with funny ears or different hairdos and things like that. Now, no one really believes that yet at this time. 
but it's now possible, in a sense, to coherently talk about this in a speculative way. Well, in 1609, everything changes because Galileo gets a hold of the directions, the, the news, basically, from his friend Paolo Sarpi that someone has constructed a telescope, and so he quickly makes one and makes more and makes the lenses better and uh, presents one, as he does here, to the Doge of Venice. And here are the observations that are made by Galileo and by others in the period between 1609 and 1611. <clears throat> the moon has craters, mountains, and a landscape. Well, there are maps of the moon before the telescope. Leonardo does one. Uh, William Gilbert does one in the court of Queen Elizabeth. But now, if you can get a hold of one of these telescopes, the moon not only has a landscape, but it looks like a world. It looks like a place. You can imagine kind of walking around there. Venus has phases. The Jupiter has four moons, a miniature solar system of its own, which means you can't have crystalline spheres if that's going on. So Aristotle is out the window. And there's some characteristics of the phases of Venus that make it impossible for Ptolemy to be right. The Milky Way, we find, is composed of thousands of stars, not entirely new. But then again, you don't have to read Latin and go back into ancient manuscripts. All you have to do is get a hold of a telescope. And within a month or two after <clears throat> Galileo got a lifetime stipend as a result of giving his telescope to the Doge, they were on sale on the street in Venice, and any child could buy one. And so anyone can now look at Jupiter and see those four moons. Saturn has something going on with it that doesn't get cleared up until later. And the sun has spots and rotates. Galileo is not the first to notice this, but he is part of the debate. As a result of this, everything changes. Now we can talk about, well, can you walk on the moon? Is there water on the moon? And you have imaginary voyages to the moon. This is Galileo's um, image of the moon that is published in the Sidereus Nuncius in 1610. And it's not an accurate um, map of the moon, such as Harriet and others are making at that time, but rather it gives you a notion of the craters and the mare uh, and the mountains. And mare simply means sea or ocean, and they thought that these were uh, oceans at that time. So we're going to take various perspectives on the question of plurality of worlds. These are some of the people that we have looked at and some of the people that we're going to look at. Giordano Bruno is well known. <clears throat> he uh, proclaimed in a prophetic way uh, essentially the hardcore pluralism, that the sun is a star, that other stars are suns, that they have planets, that they have civilizations just like us. Um, he was not a scientist. Um, and he was in, I guess you might say, he was a philosopher uh, into hermetic traditions and things like that and made some political enemies in England, uh, I'm sorry, in Italy. Uh, he traveled uh, to England. He got to know people like Kepler and Raleigh and so on, uh, but got back to Italy and uh, was arrested and imprisoned and eventually burned at the stake. And so you ask, well, why did they do that? That's subject of a whole debate in itself. Uh, I'll throw my two cents in and say that, let me back up for a second, that Bruno in his statements was not theologically discreet. Uh, that is to say, not only did he say that Aristotle's notion of the heaven was wrong and all that, he said that the space here is just like the space in the sky. And he used the word heaven. And he said, we right now are in heaven. Now, when the Inquisition hears that, they know what to do. And so he is burned at the stake in the Campo dei Fiori uh, in Rome in the year 1600 uh, and should serve as an, an example to us all of something. I'm not quite sure what. Uh, if we go up north, we find that there are a variety of figures in England who are thinking very actively about this. One of them is John Wilkins. 
He is a clergyman, a priest. He is a philosopher. He's one of the founders of the Royal Society. He is Bishop of Chester. He is head of, at one time, a college at both Oxford and Cambridge, and he writes a book called The Discovery of a World in the Moon, published in 1638. Here is the <clears throat> uh, front page, the frontispiece of that book. You can see he is mainly concerned here with the sun, the earth going around it, carrying the moon with it. The discovery of a world in the moon, a discourse tending to prove that tis probable that there may be another habitable world in that planet. A quote, very many others, both English and French, all who affirmed our earth to be one of the planets and the sun to be the center of all, above which the heavenly bodies did move and how horrid soever this may seem at the first, yet it is likely enough to be true, nor is there any maxim or observation in optics that can disprove it. Now, if our earth, were one of the planets, as it is according to them. Why then may not another of the planets be an Earth? That is the core of the plurality of worlds debate. That's what it means. If we are the same, then perhaps we are the same in shocking ways. He is not alone. Kepler writes a book called The Somnium, which has some extravagant speculations. The great astronomer Christian Huygens, uh, who does a ton of stuff we don't have time to go into. Uh, here's his diagram, by the way, for uh, the rings of Saturn. He is the one who figures this out. He discovers Titan. He is uh, a multi-talented uh, and very important uh, astronomer. He writes a book called The Cosmotheros. He discusses extraterrestrial life and concludes that life on other worlds will probably be fairly similar to what it is on Earth. He concludes on one place that water is necessary for life, and he observes dark and light spots on Mars and Jupiter and connects them to ice. Now, Mars is interesting because it's really hard to get a good view of Mars from Earth on a ground-based telescope of any type. And that's why Galileo doesn't say anything about it, because the optics on his telescopes are, are awful by modern standards. Uh, and we have some maps of Mars drawn by Huygens, and, and you've got some light areas and some dark areas, but they change. Even when you've got good seeing on Earth, the face of Mars changes radically in terms of light areas and dark areas, and who knows what that could be at this point in history. The great philosopher Leibniz, uh, in whom I am not an expert, uh, among his uh, writings are scattered comments about plurality of worlds at various parts. He studies under Huygens early in his career, but he, he has statements like this one. There could exist an infinity of other spaces and worlds entirely different from ours. They would have no distance from us if the spirits inhabiting them had sensations not related to ours. Exactly as the world and the space of dreams differ from our waking world, there could even be in such a world quite different laws of motion. What in the world is he talking about? Here we have another meaning of the word world, don't we? And this really relates back to what Lucretius was talking about. He didn't mean that whatever this piece of ground is we're on, that there's another one over there that we could conceivably fly to in a rocket or something. He's really talking, and, and Leibniz here is talking from a philosophical perspective, not simply an astronomical one or planetary sciences one. He's talking about states of existence, qualities of being, the meaning of the word infinity, and the possibility, much debated at this time in theological circles, that goes back to a medieval principle we find in Don Scotus and, and Nicholas of Cusa, and that is plenitude and um, limitations on the power of God. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, you can't really tell him that he can't make more than one universe. In fact, he might make an, an infinity of universes, you just don't get to see them from here. And this is a principle taken very seriously by medieval theologians and by later philosophers as well. Clearly, from the way he describes this, he's describing another world that we might say, but it coexists with ours. And so what he's describing is very similar to something we're all familiar with in science fiction when they talk about a parallel dimension, right? You don't have to travel to a parallel dimension. You just have to find a gateway because it's right here with us all the time. And there might be many of them. 
And so this idea also is included in what we mean by plurality of the worlds. Another great figure, and this is more from a planetary sciences perspective, is Fontenelle. He is an early figure of the French Enlightenment. And he comes from good pedigree. Uh, his mother was the great playwright Corneille's uh, sister. He writes poems and plays in operas and don't bother reading them uh, to be diplomatic. They are not of the first rank. However, he gets to be secretary of the French Academy of Sciences. And what that means is uh, a bunch of scientists are in a room arguing and he makes the notes. He, he writes it all down. But he got really good at it and they actually enjoyed reading his notes because he could make them lively and make them interesting. And at their urging, he writes essentially a work of popular astronomy. It is called The Conversation on the Plurality of Worlds. It comes out in 1686. It is a bestseller. It is translated all over the place. <coughs> he writes it in French, not Latin, because he's a Copernican and he wants to spread Copernican ideas. And it is simply a dialogue, a conversation between a, a gallant philosoph, uh, you might say an, an elderly astronomy professor, and a young lady who is the daughter of the lord of the manor, uh, a marquise, and I gather she comes somewhere in between a countess and a duchess on the totem pole of aristocracy. Among uh, the quotes that one might choose from this, behold a universe so immense that I am lost in it. I no longer know where I am. I am just nothing at all. Our world is terrifying in its insignificance. Now, what does he mean by world? He only means the planet Earth, right? Now the planet Earth is so tiny that it's terrifying because our planet is so small compared to everything that's out there. And this is a very common feeling you get in the 17th century in France. Philosophers like Pascal, who says the... Uh, the, the vista of those infinite spaces terrifies me. And what they're looking at are the ramifications of the breaking of that shell with the stars and the realization that the stars just keep on going out and we don't know how far. Notice also that by the late 17th, early 18th century, they have two things going on. They have the telescope, which makes us the size of nothing compared to the universe that is, and they have the microscope, which makes us so large compared to these tiny creatures that we're like a cloud. Once you get up close to it, there's nothing there. And here we are poised between these two infinities of the infinitely small and the infinitely large. This book has lots of additions. Here's a typical frontispiece. The uh, tutor or the teacher here is instructing the young lady. Uh, you have a beautiful French garden and a landscape, and up in the sky, you have the Copernican uh, solar system writ large for you. This is an illustration from the book where he has taken our solar system and placed it in the midst of lots of other solar systems, each with a sun and different kinds of planets. Notice that you have a proscenium arch here that he has arranged it as a kind of stage. And if you remember 17th century opera, uh, one of the things they used to do is have clouds like this on the stage going back to give you a real feeling of the three-dimensionality of the action that's going on on the stage. Here we have that, only it goes all the way around in a circle, so you have a kind of infinite tube going back into space. And you have the planets outlined down here. This is another, this was the poster for this talk, uh, and I love this picture. This is Fontenelle contemplating the plurality of worlds with his trusty dog and his trusty telescope and uh, an anthropomorphic face on the moon, complete with a powdered wig and all the rest of it. Here's another illustration. Again, you have uh, the teacher and the student and um, the uh, French garden with the solar system in the background. Now, when we get to Voltaire, the great 18th century philosopher, uh, we find that he's up on all of these questions, and he makes fun of uh, Leibniz, he makes fun of Fontenelle, uh, but he himself takes very seriously the plurality of the worlds. Here are a couple of images of him. Uh, in the interest of time, we won't go into them too much. Uh, I just want to say this is Voltaire wearing the Roman toga and the, the uh, crown, the laurel crown of the poet. 
and he's inspired by these rays of light that come from a beautiful woman who is Madame de Châtelet, his patroness, and the woman with whom he is having a ménage à trois, and she is reflecting down the light from heaven, which is managed by Isaac Newton, the English. And so both Voltaire and Châtelet translate Newton into French and are responsible for the dissimulation of the new scientific thinking on the continent. Well, one of his philosophical tales is Micromegas, which means small and large. And in this tale, which comes out in 1752, sorry, um, a resident of Saturn uh, has a meeting with a resident from the star Sirius. You have a very large, super intelligent alien from the star Sirius who flies through space, lands on Saturn, and picks up this resident of Saturn who isn't that bright, but they go traveling together. And they land on Earth, and after a while they look down and they're able to make sense out of the tiny, tiny creatures on Earth, and they, they find a ship full of philosophers. And you have a Thomist and a, a Lockean and a Leibnizian, and, and so he debates with them over the nature of the universe. It's a lovely tale, but it's clear Voltaire is working with ideas of plurality of worlds and taking them for granted uh, in the structure of this plot. He also makes fun of Thomas Wright of Durham. Uh, one of the things that Wright of Durham does, he's an astronomer, this is his observatory, is try to make out the shape. If the stars go out and out and we don't know how far, what else can we see by observing? There are these smears of uh, luminosity called nebula about which we know nothing at that point, and we have the Milky Way. And so uh, Thomas Wright of Durham tries to make sense of this by saying we are ensconced inside the Milky Way, and when we look at the Milky Way, we're looking down this way, and when we look away from it, we look out and we see fewer stars. But he actually thinks that that is part of a giant sphere. That is to say, if a sphere is small, you can see the curvature. But as the sphere gets larger and larger and larger, it looks more and more like a flat pancake. And he thinks that the, the um, Milky Way, as we see it in the sky, is actually looking lengthways along the surface of a giant sphere. William Herschel, with his larger reflectors in the 18th century, is studying nebulae and making larger and larger telescopes. He's looking for nebulae and he discovers the planet Uranus. As a result of this, King George III patronizes him, gives him money to big builder telescope, to build larger telescopes. And one of the things that, that Herschel will do is star counts. He will go through patches of the sky and count in a statistical way how many stars there are. And he puts together this map as the shape of the Milky Way. We are here, and this is really more quantitatively rigorous than it looks. Uh, over here is the uh, dust lane that you can see when the Milky Way divides into two. Uh, but basically, uh, Herschel is trying to make sense of the whole, and he himself is also open to ideas of plurality they were not beyond thinking that the sun itself might contain residents, that the moon might be inhabited. These were theoretical things which there was no data one way or the other to support them, so they were simply speculative conversations. The great philosopher Immanuel Kant, in the early stages of his career, writes about the plurality of worlds. In this particular book, The Universal Natural History and Theory of the Heavens, comes out in 1755, he speculates this and develops a hierarchy of intelligent life forms that we might expect to find on these places. Well, when we get to the end of the 19th century, plurality of the worlds takes an interesting turn with Schiaparelli and Percival Lowell, who with larger and better telescopes are able to discern uh, canals on our close neighbor Mars. Percival Lowell builds a giant observatory with a beautiful telescope. You can visit the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff. You can actually look through this telescope, uh, which is a, a wonderful experience. I've seen the rings of Saturn uh, through that. But uh, for Lowell, uh, he's quite clear in three books and lots of articles that uh, Mars is inhabited 
and has a superior older civilization and they manage water with the canals and so on. And this lasts until we get better telescopes and the astronomical community is very discreet and wait until uh, these uh, theories are shown to be false. But today, Mars is a place. Today we send things to Mars all the time. We talk about weather on Mars. Uh, we, are, we are very, very well acquainted with conditions there. And um, if we go back and divide the plurality of worlds into two elements, are there other worlds, i.e. planets, and are they inhabited? Is there life on them? Well, we can certainly say there are other planets. We've voyaged to the other planets in our own solar system. We understand them as places. When it comes to life, well, how do we define life? What are the, what are the conditions that you have to have to say, well, there's life there? Most astrobiologists would say something along the lines of, you're going to need stuff, you're going to need material, silicon, calcium, stuff like that, carbon. You're going to need complex carbon molecules. You're going to need some kind of lubricant. Water, it turns out, is the very best of those. That's our lubricant. And you're going to need regular exchanges of temperature. And so if we look for those on Mars, the first thing that we find is there is water on Mars. Most of it is frozen. But even here, we have evidence for the intermittent presence of water. And that is to say, if you think of this as a cliff coming down at about a 45 degree angle, there are layers of frozen water, of water ice under the ground. And when exposed to the sun, a little bit of that will melt. It will run down the hill. And as it does so, it will pick up particles and then deposit them at the bottom. You can tell the difference between the dates here doesn't take a long time for that to happen. And there are many, many uh, examples of this thanks to the high rise the Mars Global Survey and other missions that have taken high quality digital pictures of the Martian surface. Here you can see trails where a liquid has broken out here and gone down picking up sediments and then displaying them in an alluvial fan down at the bottom. Down here you can see dunes, sand dunes. And in some cases, those sand dunes change, not every million years, but they change on a weekly basis. And so if one of these things goes down and deposits an alluvial fan on top of those dunes, that tells you that it's going on right now, not a million years ago. Of course, more recently, in 2009, our own Phoenix mission uh, scraped. Uh, that's not more than a few inches deep. And already they're finding uh, this material here which in the space of four days has already begun to sublime. And so this is frozen water ice just beneath the surface of Mars. Most planetary scientists would say today that there's an enormous amount of, of frozen water on the surface or, or in that planet uh, beneath the surface. That doesn't mean that there's life. Uh, and so the current Mars Curiosity mission is going to be drilling. Uh, and it's doing well after its miraculous landing and sending back very good pictures of the landscape, including rock formations that really you have to have water uh, to get rocks to form the way these rocks form. It's making its way across the landscape and as of a few weeks ago had identified some places where it was going to drill. Well, how many ways are there to find another planet if we approach it in scientific terms? In our classes, we say there are five ways to find an exoplanet. But in terms of getting somewhere with the science, uh, the radial velocity method and the transit method are the ones that are yielding the greatest fruits right now. Now, radial velocity has to do with the Doppler shift that works with light the same way that it works with sound. When an object is coming towards you, emitting a beep, that will rise in frequency as it comes towards you and decline in frequency as it moves away from you. Likewise, light, if it's coming for, towards you, will be blue shifted. If it's moving away from you, it will be red shifted. Now, planets, uh, we were always kind of wrong. A planet doesn't really orbit around the star. 
the planet and the star orbit around their common center of mass, right? And so uh, if this is a faraway star with a planet going around it, and I'm looking at it from over here, that is, I'm gazing at it from the side, not from your angle, but from mine, I can't see the planet because it's too dim. But I can see the star, and if I do a spectroscopic analysis of it, I'll notice a blue shift as it comes toward me, and a red shift as it goes away, and a blue shift, and a red shift. And that is the radial velocity method of detecting an exoplanet. Radial because it has to be moving towards you or away from you for it to work. What you get is this kind of curve. This has been a very successful way to detect exoplanets. When I came to this university in 1988, there were zero planets around other stars. My undergraduate students don't believe me. They don't live in the same world. But when I was in college, to talk about a planet around another star was talking science fiction. It was purely speculative, no evidence for it whatsoever. And then in the late 80s and early 90s, we had false positives. And then with Jeff Marcy and his team and lots of others, you had the discovery of real exoplanets. And now they're going to town. They're coming out of our ears, in a sense. Now, another way to detect a planet is if the planet actually comes between us and the star. And when that happens, the amount of light that we get from the star will decrease. And that is called the transit method. This has turned out to be extremely useful. Now, this is strange because the only way you can detect that is if the planet is right on the same level as you are in terms of the orbital plane. And yet, this turns out to be extremely useful. You get a curve like this where the planet begins to cross the star and then uh, when you have the light from the star uninterrupted. Here's an example from the Corot mission. So these discoveries now, even with radial velocity, they can detect more than one planet, the shape of the orbit, the masses of the planets involved, uh, extremely sophisticated analysis, promising very great results. Then there's the Kepler mission. The Kepler mission is dedicated to only looking at transits. It picks one portion of the sky and stares at it for four years. It has already identified particular candidates and it watches those stars for any diminution in the light curve. The diameter of the mirror, not that big, very small by Arizona standards. Um, the, if, if we were describing this in the 1950s, we would say this is an artificially intelligent brain. It assimilates information in orbit. It sends data back down to Earth. It is uh, an enormously successful scientific project. Uh, let me just mention that if you Google uh, Kepler mission, uh, they have a wonderful website with a lot of very good materials. This is the array of CCDs. And, um, well, I might just mention that Kepler is in a trailing orbit behind the Earth with a sunscreen. But this is the area of the sky that it watches constantly. It's between Cygnus and Lyra. Notice that it shoots off in a cone that takes part of the Milky Way with it, right? It's kind of on the border. Here you have the Milky Way and the dust lane, and here is the area that's being watched. So the candidates go out to about 3,000 light years away. And again, this is a very small cross-section of our galaxy. Very early on, it was clear that Kepler was more successful than we had dared to hope. The number of candidates, these slides are old, so they don't even represent uh, the actual data that we have right now. Multi-planet systems are quite common. And so they don't make any announcement of a planet unless it has a circular orbit, it's Earth-like, and it's inside the habitable zone. And otherwise, you wouldn't even hear about it. Here's an example of one, Kepler-10b. Here's a multi-planet system, Kepler-9. Uh, again, it's easy to find lots of good sort of educational materials on this if you're interested. I recommend their website. Uh, Usually, the big planets that 
hug the star are the ones you see first. Uh, to count it as a discovery, the, star needs to, the, the planet needs to come in between us and the star three times. And that means, well, if it were an Earth, it would take three years. And so the ones we discover first are the ones that are really whipping around their star. But as you can see, we have quite a diversity of types of planets. All kinds of sizes, all kinds of temperatures, all kinds of constitutions. This is the uh, dream of plurality of worlds. That is a diverse universe. Not just Earths with another New York City and another Dallas, but wild, crazy environments. There are planets where iron exists as a gas. It's so hot. Uh, and we're going to get lots more colder planets as more time goes by. Of course, when I saw this scene in Star Trek, I'm sorry, Star Wars many years ago, I thought, God, they're stupid. You could never have a planet going around two suns. That doesn't make any sense. Well, I was wrong. Uh, they do, uh, and Kepler has discovered them. Uh, another cool thing you can do, I won't do it now, is uh, Google Kepler Orrery, and you'll get a splayed, uh, display of solar systems discovered by Kepler with the, stars going, with, with the planets going around the star in, in proportional velocities. And it's, it's quite a, a, a nice arrangement. What are the planets like? Uh, here is a short graph. Notice over here, 351 planets the size of the Earth. Now, they might be close to the star or far from the star, or they might have different masses from the Earth, but we're now capable of detecting planets about the size of the Earth. Uh, that is new, alarming, and uh, invigorating, I would say. Now, this shows Earth-sized planets in the Kepler quadrant. Just that one area of the sky has that many planets that are the same size as the Earth. It is an abundant universe that we live in. So, some recent estimates. There was an article that came out a couple of weeks ago in uh, AppJ that did some statistical analysis based on the Kepler results. Over 900 confirmed. You can go to the Planet Quest uh, website that NASA has, and they have a ticker uh, that keeps count of all the planets. Thousands more are in the Kepler pipeline, but they haven't been confirmed yet. Now, uh, there are about 100 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy. The Kepler mission calculates about 100 billion planets in our galaxy. So for every star that you see in the sky, there's a planet somewhere. Might not be around that star, but we have lots of multi-planet systems. With about 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and it could be a lot more, you can multiply that out and see how many Earth-type planets we have. And over here with um, the number of planets in the galaxy, they estimate about uh, 15 to 17 billion are Earth size. So, plurality of worlds. Um, oh, before I finish, uh, incidentally, uh, using radial velocity, we have also discovered that the nearest star to Earth, Alpha Centauri, has a planet, and it's the size of Earth. You wouldn't want to go there. It's basically hot lava. But uh, Alpha Centauri uh, does have uh, a planet. Uh, here's a, an image of it here. A little dark. Not a photograph, but a painting. So if we go back to the ancient roots, when they talk about another world, meaning another universe, another dimension, we find that in quantitative cosmology, they find it convenient to talk about the pluriverse, right? about an infinite array of possible universes. But that sounds rather speculative to most of us. But if we're talking about planets, we've got lots of them. If we talk about life on other worlds, the current count is zero. No life has been detected on any planet off the Earth, but that's just because our instruments aren't very good and we haven't gone anywhere yet. And at that point, I'll, I'll stop in the interest of time. Thank you very much.
I'll Thank you very much, Richard. Three. We have time for questions. Yes. Right, thank you. Could you explain why uh, Pluto was dis discarded as a planet? Um, no. <laughs> um, the question is, why was Pluto discarded as a planet? I suppose there was a need for a rigorous definition of a planet, something that would include the other planets, but not Ceres and Sedna and other Kuiper Belt objects that are about the same size as Pluto. There's a sense in which Pluto is simply a, a Kuiper Belt object. But um, what I would emphasize there is that, um, that this was, it had a bit of showmanship, a bit of PR, a bit of let's get on TV about it. Uh, it, had, it offered no new information about Pluto at all. And so it, it was almost a, a PR maneuver in my mind. Uh, your history, uh, I never see any contributions from China, uh, the Arab world, or from India. Were they just not interested in astronomy the way the Western Europeans were, or do we just not know what they were doing, what they were up to? Clearly, my survey is Western culture, right? Greeks, Romans, medieval Europe. But if the, if the question is serious about what's going on in the Arab world during um, various periods, I would say that Aristotle's philosophy not only takes over the Roman world, but when Rome falls, Aristotle is still dominant. And so you have a spherical Earth, and you have concentric spheres, and you have stars imprinted on a starry vault in uh, the Arab world uh, with the rise of Islam in the Islamic world. And there are plenty of manuscripts and designs, and you've seen some of them in my classes, uh, that, that contain those. Um, plurality of worlds, I'm not aware, but I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, I do know that when uh, the Middle Ages in Western Europe is, uh, say, 1200 to 1300, around in there, in the Islamic world, uh, they are writing commentaries on Aristotle, just like the scholastic philosophers, but they're revising uh, the astronomy of Ptolemy. They're adding new devices uh, to the epicycles, and they're pointing out the mistakes of Aristotle and Ptolemy and reworking them in ways that are... Uh, in, in a sense, more aggressive than what's going on in the West. Um, however, I think it's the, the fact that Copernicus happens in Europe and that the telescope happens in Europe that gives them the push ahead. Other questions? Yes. Well, see, um, I looked up on the Internet a couple years ago, and apparently they said the Arabs either invented the telescope in the 800 or the 1300s A.D., I'd like to know, do you, do we have any, do you, do you know what that is? That's obviously not what Galileo had. Yeah, the, the question is, were, were telescopes invented anywhere before uh, Galileo? Um, first of all, the telescope, uh, oh, let me see what to say here. There are literary accounts before Galileo that say people have put together lenses and mirrors in such a way that you can see something far away and it looks like it's close. The problem is it can't be verified. And I'm not familiar with the report of an Arab telescope and I, I'm not aware of any confirmation of it even. Um, I am aware that there are other sources. Uh, there are medieval sources that say that Julius Caesar uh, when he was about to invade Britain, uh, they put together some lenses and mirrors and they were able to see the fortifications that the Celts had in Britain. I, find, I simply don't believe that. I mean, it's written down, but I, I don't think it happened. Um, in the Western tradition, there are telescopes before Galileo, but not by very much. It's invented by Lipperhe and others in Amsterdam in 1608, 1609, and, and it's active. You have telescopes in England and in Antwerp and, and so on, but uh, not by more than a year. So really, 1608-1609 is the first telescope. Your discussion left out one of my favorite Greeks, Aristarchus of Samos. Why? <laughs> if you want to stay here, 
we can do Anaxagoras, Aximenes, Parmenides, Hipparchus, Eratosthenes, my favorite too, Aristarchus, who uh, 200 or more years before Christ says, you know, this would really make more sense if we put the sun in the center and we let the planets go around the sun. And, and he wasn't burned at the stake. He had students, they debated, and it lost out. And the reason it lost out was the failure to find a parallax. Uh, and, and you have brilliant astronomers like Hipparchus, great observational astronomers who devised the magnitude system and, and star maps and so on. And they go with geocentricity and, and it's not bias, it's not prejudice, it's just the failure to find any kind of parallax. And by parallax, I mean that if the Earth is going around the sun, you ought to be able to see some movement in the stars uh, as a result of that. Uh, and that's a sensible thing. Uh, but yeah, Aristarchus is one of my heroes, and I, I beat him into my students every semester. Any other questions? If not, um, while Professor Poss was speaking, I grabbed a clipboard and brought it in. Um, for those of you who were here for my talk in January, we're trying to start a, a mailing list here at Stewart Observatory, especially for those of you that like to come to these talks often, so we know how to reach you via email, for example, in case we have to cancel a lecture or there's a change in schedule. So if you would like to, if you signed it last time, you don't have to this time, but if you'd like to join our mailing list, give us your email address. There's a clipboard up there, and we'll get in touch with you in case we need to tell you about changes in these lectures. Uh, I would like to invite you again to come to our lecture in two weeks with Professor Dave Arnett, who will give his Russell lecture again for us. The telescope is open now. It's the white building. Feel free to go over and look through it. Um, I will stamp student assignments down here, and let's thank Professor Poss one more time.